I'd like to kind of try and conclude my sessions out of James over the next couple of weeks with you. And this really is the, an exciting part of the book because it's all the pastoral stuff. It's James sharing his heart as the, the father of this church with his people. And last time I preached, uh, I had the opportunity to look at the first half of these verses. Is anyone amongst you sick? Let him call for the elders. And so I looked at um, what James meant by elders. And uh, I looked at what James meant by prayer and praying with uh, the prayer of faith and anointing in the name of the Lord Jesus, and anointing with oil. And I had a look at um, some of those things. And just to, just to recap a little bit, to give a context of what I'd like to say this morning, just to remind you, we looked at eldership and I looked at that word of presbyteros, which is the most common word used in both the Old and the New Testament. It's used 180 times in the Bible to describe this thing of an elder and what that means. And so I said to you, the the most common way that it's used in the Old Testament is simply to describe people that are older in the church, people with gray hair, and um, those are people called elders. And that in the Hebrew tradition, that's largely what it meant, people of respect in the community, people that uh, others would look up to and say, "We, we can see you're a person of wisdom, and in that sense, an elder. And then I also went on to say that it means more than that. It grew in the, in the New Testament to also mean someone irrespective of age, but someone that uh, did have the respect of the community, that was the kind of Christian that you would want to minister to you and want to, you to pray for them. And that's what James is saying here in this, in this portion. It's those kind of people that he says uh, should be leading the local church in team together. So it's more than one person. It's a team of, of people. And I wanted to say also that... Um, Paul later in, in Acts 20 talks very specifically about appointing elders in the local church. And so James hadn't yet done that in the way that Paul had done it. So I, I, I kind of feel like this is an exciting scripture for all of us because it means what it, it means for ministry in the local church that local church ministry, praying for the sick and praying for healing is not the sole responsibility of, of full-time elders or people that are appointed elders. It's the responsibility of every believer and it's the responsibility of mature believers to pray for others that are sick. And that should excite us. That should liberate us and encourage us because uh, that's what God wants to do. He wants all of us. We are all priests. We are all ministers. And uh, I, I did le- neglect to say something last time um, that I do want to say this time. I talked about eldership as a male function and said that um, the Bible does teach that. And so I, I want to try and just, um, in, a, in a hopefully a balanced way, bring some perspective. Because obviously, in our day and age, when you say something like that, you can be accused of sexism, you can be accused of a whole lot of things. And I believe it's possible that we can live with a biblical framework for our lives and still dignify every single person in the church. And I believe the Bible is even-handed in its use of language and the way it talks about leadership that honors the differences that we have as men and women and yet dignifies everyone and allows everyone to find their place in the local church. And I think that's an incredibly exciting thing. So, for example, if I could think of Galatians, a wonderful book about the liberty and the freedom that we have in the gospel. The highest accolades that the gospel pays us, the climax of the gospel is that you and I are sons of the living God. Yeah? Have you ever thought about why Paul, 
who, who in other places like in Ephesians, who talks about the, the, the differences between husbands and wives. Why does Paul call everybody a son of God in Galatians? Now, it's very interesting because the, new, the, the NRV translates that verse and says, we are all children of God, which is true. We are all children of God. The ESV says we are sons of God, which is more accurate. And I believe God used Paul to make a profound point. He's trying to make a profound point that includes men and women. And he calls men and women sons of God. Why does he do that? Is he, I, I believe Paul was radically egalitarian. Radically. And he is saying a radical thing when he says that. And sometimes when we put a political lens on, we think he's being sexist by calling women sons. He is making a profound point. This is the profound point he is making. If you go on, he says part of, be, if you read further, part of being a son is that you have the full inheritance of the father. That's why he says even daughters of God are sons of God. Why? Because in his cultural context, the only person who got an inheritance from the father was the eldest son. The eldest son got everything. A second son got nothing. And a woman in the family got nothing. Nothing. No inheritance. Paul says, we are all sons of the living God. That means, ladies... Your inheritance is as a firstborn son. My inheritance is as a firstborn son. You get everything that the Father has for you. That is a radically egalitarian thing that Paul says. And so, of course we are all children of God. Of course we must use the language that says we are sons and daughters. But Paul is making a point. He is saying that there is an inheritance for all of us that is equal absolutely equal before the cross. And so he goes on in Galatians and he says something like this. He says, there is no slave or free. What he's saying is, when the gospel comes into your life, economic boundaries are broken down in the church. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're one in Christ. He says, there's no Greek or Jew. He says, so basically what he's trying to say is, when the gospel comes in your life, there's a radical thing that happens. And it doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. You are one in Christ. Amen. And so, it was, for me, it was powerful to be able to preach in, in Slovenia and preach some of these things and just say to the guys, it doesn't matter if you're Serbian, Croat, Bosnian, or Slovenian, you are one in Christ and your future is that you're going to become like Jesus. You know how powerful that is? In a place that has been wrecked by civil war for years and years and years. The gospel is amazing. And so that's what Paul is saying. Saying no cultural differences, no economic differences. And he also says this. He says there's no male or female. Any um, differences in terms of sexual equality, the, 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 the gospel elevates women to a place of absolute equality before the cross. The gospel is radical. Jesus was radical. He traveled with women. They were liberated. They, they were the first people to appear, uh, the last people to see him at the cross were women when all the men ducked. The first, the first people to witness the resurrection were ladies. The gospel elevates ladies to the rightful position they have in Christ. 
It is radically egalitarian. And yet at the same time, the gospel also says we are husbands and wives, and we are different. And it celebrates our differences, and it celebrates our equality before the cross. Are you with me? The gospel is absolutely radical. uh, I've heard people say Paul was a chauvinist. I think Paul was the most radically egalitarian person. He understood the gospel profoundly. He understood what the gospel does. He understood how the gospel breaks down every single boundary. And that's why he's able to say there's neither male nor female. There's no Greek. There's no Jew. There's no rich. There's no poor. We are one in Christ. It's an amazing thing. And so I say all of that to say that we hold that elders are male, and the way that eldership uh, functions is a team of elders in a local church, and it functions like a father and mother would function in a church. A father, it is possible to, to lead a church with the heart of fathers that want the best for every single person in the church, whether they are male, female, rich, poor, English, Welsh, South African, Brazilian. You want the best for them as a father wants the best for his children. That's what good leadership should do. Are you with me? And so we've always said we don't, we don't mind where people come from. <laughs> we don't mind what people's background is. Whether you feel like you've had a, a radical conversion or just an ordinary person growing up, whatever, I don't care what country you are from, we have one Father in heaven, we have one Lord, one Savior, one baptism, and we are becoming more and more like His Son. It's a radical thing, the church. And that's how we believe a local church should be governed, lovingly. And so I'm aware that sometimes people might say, well, I haven't had a very positive experience of, of people leading churches and I've been dominated by men and I don't, it makes me feel nervous. I understand that. I really do. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't embrace what the Scripture says and live it out as best as we can. Yeah? And it's possible to do that. And at the same time, for women to be ministers of the gospel in their own right, to preach and prophesy and lead worship and to do whatever God has called them to do. It's possible. That's the way it should be. Are you with me? Good. So that was about eldership, and that's what I touched on last time, but I just wanted to bring that clarity this time. And then I also talked about the fact that when we pray for the sick, there's no healing power in the oil. Remember, I talked about that. There's no healing power in the oil. It's the prayer of faith that heals the person. And that's what I would like to just touch on this morning, the second half of those verses, the prayer of faith. What does that mean? Oh, the other thing I just wanted to say is um, I tried to encourage you last time that we have a growing heart for the supernatural, that we trust God to see extraordinary miracles, and at the same time, we don't so desire the extraordinary that we minimize the ordinary in inverted commas, that God does with us every single day. And I said to you, isn't, isn't it a privilege that we live in this, this time where we can, you, you and I are more healthy than e- anyone has been in the history of the planet? Why? Because of the extraordinary grace of God to, into our lives. That so we live in the 21st century where we have such admo- advances in medical um, technology and science, and we live healthy lives, to a ripe old age simply because of the grace of God in our lives. And so I said to you last time, let's not minimize the everyday blessing of God and and have such a desire for the supernatural that we just say, well, the the everyday blessing of God is kind of somehow second race. It's not. It's both ends, isn't it? 
We live with a passion to see the supernatural, and we thank God for every time we experience healing. Whether it's uh, we, all healing comes from God. So whether we go to a doctor or God heals us in an extraordinary way, we rejoice every time we are healed. The first place we go is God, absolutely. And that's what I also try to encourage you with, with last time. And so let's look then at this phrase this morning, the prayer of faith. What does it mean? Well, it's very interesting because this is one of the best known phrases out of the book of James. It's also a unique phrase. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the scripture. It's the only place that this phrase is used, the prayer of faith. So why does James use it? And what is he... Why does he use it specifically here? And we've, we saw last time that the first thing that James does try to establish is that it's our prayer, the prayer of faith, that brings healing to the sick person, and yet he uses this specific phrase. Well, I want to say two things as an introduction. We can deduce from that phrase that where there's no prayer of faith, there will be no healing. Yeah? He's saying the prayer of faith heals the person. So if there's no prayer of faith, we can deduce possibly there will be no healing. And we can also deduce that not all prayer is faithful prayer. He's making, he's saying when you pray, it must be a prayer of faith. Yeah, so he's implying that you can pray without faith. All right, so I want to look at some of these things this morning. And here again, I think it is important to have a look at uh, the Greek translation because again, the prayer of faith um, is translated prayer of faith in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and other versions. The New International Version and the, the Authorized Standard Version, they, they translated the prayer offered in faith. The prayer offered in faith um, heals the sick person. And I want to just say to you this morning, I feel like that dilutes what, what God is saying through this portion for a number of reasons, and I want to give them to you now. James has already shown us in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 3, that there are examples in our lives when we pray without faith and we pray incorrectly. Why? Because he said, chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend, you spend this on your passions. In other words, your own selfish motivation. So someone might have thought, I did pray in faith, but my prayer wasn't answered. Well, James is saying sometimes we ask with the wrong motive. That's what, that's what he's saying. That's why our prayer is not answered. So it's possible to pray in a way that is not full of faith. Secondly, James 4.8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And we do draw near to God when we pray. And that's a wonderful thing. And it is praying in faith in one sense. In, in, in the sense that we move away from the world. We move away from a back, backslidden kind of... Uh, worldview, and we embrace God, and as we move away from the world, we, mo- we move simultaneously towards God, and that is praying, and that is exercising faith, and that is true, it's good, but I don't think it's what James is saying specifically here, he's not saying that. And then we come to this portion in chapter 5, where he says, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. Remember, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and that word there, I told you, simply means when we're in trouble, we draw near to God. That's what he's saying in that context. When we're experiencing trouble, we draw near to God and we pour out our heart to God. But that also is not what James is saying here. All of those three things are true, but they're not what James is saying here. He uses a different word for prayer. He uses this word, E-U-C-H-E, euche, which is the Greek word 
which means more than just drawing near to God. It means coming to God and presenting Him with a specific desire or request that you want answered. He's not just saying we draw near to God as a backslidden person coming back to God. He's not just saying that we draw near to God in the sense of saying, pouring your heart out in worship and prayer. He's saying, no, this kind of prayer is where you come specifically to God and you ask for a specific thing, that you have an expectation, a desire for that thing to happen. And Paul uses this word in a number of ways. Also, in uh, Acts 26, if you, if you read that chapter, Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa. And uh, King Agrippa says to him, are you trying to make me persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? <laughs> So Paul is kind of giving his testimony, and King Agrippa says, are you trying to get me saved in such a short time? And Paul answers, it's very interesting, he says, whether in a short time or long, I would to God, it's the same word, I request, in other words, I would ask God that not only you, but all that who hear me this day might become such as I am, might be saved. So Paul uses that word there, and he says, yeah, if you're saying, I would make a specific request and ask God that all of you get saved. Yes, absolutely, I want you to be like me. That's what he's saying, okay? And he uses it again in um, Romans 9, verse 3. And he says, I could wish, and it's translated from the Greek there again, that I myself were cut off from Christ for the sake of all my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about his desire for all the, Jew, the Jewish people to come into the kingdom. And he's saying, I would wish that I, I, I would be cut off. I'd make that request to God, that specific request. I don't mind if that happens to me, if everyone else comes in to Christ. So he uses it specifically. And so I say that to point you to the fact that James is saying something really specific about how we want to pray for the sick. He's saying we need to make our specific desire known. We come with a specific request to God and say, God, we want that thing specifically to be done. And we trust that um, as that is combined with a measure of faith in our lives, it will produce that result of healing. And so there are those four types of prayer. We pray in the flesh when we ask with the wrong motive. It's essentially man-centered, essentially me-centered. What's good in it for me? And unfortunately, many of us do pray like that. I've prayed like that. I've been guilty of that. And at the end of the day, my prayer is not answered. Why? Because it's a selfish prayer. It's really motivated for my needs and for my life rather than for God's kingdom. And there's the prayer of the backslider coming back to God drawing near to God so that he can draw near to us. And yet these things are not exactly the same as what James is saying here, that we need to be those that are praying the prayer of faith. Can you just notice a couple of things? He says, um, I've told you it's a unique phrase, but he says, he uses in the context of praying for someone else. You notice that? He's praying for another sick person. He's not saying you pray this kind of thing for yourself necessarily. He's talking about praying for the other person. This person is very sick. Uh, I said to you last time that the Greek there translates as the weary, worn-out person. The one who's really sick, the one who's at the end of themselves, that's the person that we pray for in this way. And uh, it seems to be that it's also a one-off kind of prayer. Because he says, call the leaders of the church, they come into your home. And it's not like you do it every day. <laughs> it's like when you have an emergency, Yeah. Then you call the guys. You don't call, you don't, you don't call everyone every day. We can pray for each other every day, but he's kind of making a distinction there as well. That's kind of a special thing that we do with this kind 
of prayer. And it's offered by the leaders of the church. And I kind of looked at that last time. So I just want to say this as we, as we go forward. Um, I believe that there's a, a key here for us. God wants us to pray like this. He wants us to pray in team like this because it's an antidote in our lives to pride. It's an antidote to pride. He talks about a plural thing, a team thing of people praying for those that are sick. And it reminds me of Jesus speaking in Matthew 18, 20. And what does Jesus say? He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, and whatever you ask will be answered. Yeah, that's what, what he says in Matthew. James says it again here in a different kind of way. I said to you last time, and I want to stress it again, I believe God says we should pray like this because He doesn't want any of us to take the credit, basically. The church can be a place full of spiritual superstars. I know I've been in churches, big churches, where that's happened. I've been part of a ministry team where that's happened, where someone has come and said, I don't want you to pray for me. I want that guy to pray for me because he's the anointed guy. When he prays for people, they get healed. I don't want you to pray for me. You're just like, not good enough. Now, there is, it is true. 1 Corinthians tells us there are special gifts given to people that they, when they pray for people, something extraordinary happens. But I believe why James stresses it here is he's saying, no, it's a, it's a thing for the whole church. All of you can pray, all of you must pray, and you trust. And why you pray for, in, in twos and threes for people is so that none of you take the credit. None of you knows who was the one who had that gift of faith at that time, the prayer of faith at that time that saw the healing come. None of you can say, it was me. No, everyone has to say, well, we don't know who prayed. It must have been Jesus. That's why he says it. And let's keep ourselves free. Let's be bold. Let's pray with extraordinary faith and be happy not to take the credit when people are healed. And just say, Jesus, we thank you. Amen? And I'm not minimizing. I, I believe there are gifted men and women that have a special anointing from God that do, when they pray for people, extraordinary things happen. I recognize that. I celebrate that. But I'm saying, let's not let that distract us and say, I have to go to that guy. No, just say, God can use me. And he wants to use me. And I'm going to pray faithfully. I love the story of John Wimber. John Wimber prayed for years. I mean, he's now celebrated as someone with an extraordinary healing ministry. But he prayed for years and years and years and years for people to be healed. And nothing happened. But this is the key. He didn't give up. And he carried on praying, even when he didn't see anything happen. And then suddenly, one day, people started getting healed. And if you read his, his book, he didn't feel any different. He didn't think he was praying in a more spiritual way. He just carried on praying, and suddenly God started to move. I want to encourage you. We pray for everything that moves. <laughs> Let's just pray for any sick person that we can. Why? Because the more that we pray... The more chance God has to answer, the more God, chance has, God has to show His glory, the more testimony there will be, the more people we will, will, will see that are healed, and that will be a great blessing to the lost as well, to see that God moves. Amen? Now I want to, I want, I want to, at the end of this message, I hope you will want to pray for everything that moves. Yes. All right. So, 
I believe the prayer of faith is simply this. It's when our desire, our wish, if you like, is joined with perfect faith, and it's the perfect faith of Christ. When that happens, in those moments, we have a flash of eternal glory into our lives. There's a flash of glory. Every time we see someone healed, it's what is perfect in, in the future breaks into our present right now. We see something, of, God gives us a glimpse of the perfection that is to come. Yes? One day there will be no more pain. There will be no more sickness. And we see a flash of eternal glory into our lives when we see someone healed right here, right now. It's how it is going to be in the future. The perfection of the future breaks into our lives right now. That's what healing is. And so I want to talk about faith then because this is often where people overstress this and it can be a really, really harsh thing in the church. And I tried to say that to you last time. Let's us never get into the position of saying that people don't have enough faith. Or if you had more faith, you would have seen healing. We do have to believe. Here's the key. There's only one person who's ever had perfect faith in every way. And it's not you, and it's not me. There's only one person who's ever had perfect faith. There's only one person who has had all of his prayers answered perfectly. His name is Jesus. He's the one who's had perfect faith. You might ask, well, what about Matthew 13, 58, which says, Jesus did not do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. Surely that means that because they didn't have faith, he couldn't do miracles. No, I don't believe it means that. I, th- I, I, I think it simply means this. Simply because of the unbelief of the people, Jesus backed off. It's not that he couldn't do any miracles. It's just that he backed off because he could see they were unbelieving. I do not know of one single scripture in the New Testament where Jesus tried to pray for someone and he failed. There's not one example of that in the New Testament. Whenever Jesus prayed, his prayers were answered. He's perfect. He has perfect faith. For example, Luke 22, there's many, many examples of him praying for the sick and then being healed. But what about Luke 22, 23, where he says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Yeah? And that prayer was answered. It's true of Peter's life. Isn't it interesting that's the exact phrase that Peter uses in, in, in that prophecy in Peter as well? The words that Jesus used to him, he uses to encourage other people. It's amazing. What about John fourteen sixteen? Jesus says, I'm praying to God to send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. Was Jesus' prayer answered? Yes, it was. The Holy Spirit came, and everything changed after the Holy Spirit came. Jesus said in John 17, I do not pray for the world, but for those that you have given to me. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Jesus is still interceding for us, even right now. Every prayer that Jesus had was answered. And that's why Paul, this is how Paul lived also. He lived by faith in the Son of God, the perfect faith of Jesus. You and I are called to live not by our own, um, we are called to live by the, to, to put our imperfect faith into the perfect faith of Jesus. That's how we're called to live. If you're relying on your own faith, you're going to go up and down, up and down, up and down like that. When you're feeling good, when you're feeling full of faith, you feel strong. If you're not feeling good, feel bad. And so you'll have a laugh that goes like this. Paul didn't live like that. He said, why did I say that? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we all know that verse. The second half of the verse says this. 
and the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying he lives his life, his imperfect life. He lives by putting his trust in the perfect faith of Jesus. He lives by the perfect faith of Christ. And so when he's feeling down, doesn't matter because he is putting his faith in the perfect faith of Christ. When he feels good about himself, he rejoices, but he still puts his, his faith into the perfect faith of Jesus. That's how we live. We live by the perfect faith of Jesus. It's very different. And I'm speaking to you as a man that goes up and down. <laughs> I'm not speaking from a perfect life. I have my good days and I have my bad days. Ask my wife. She'll tell you, but I'm learning this, that I'm trying to put my imperfect life, my imperfect faith, my imperfect belief into the perfect one who is perfect all the time. And that's how I want to live. Amen? That's how we live. That's how Paul lived. And you see, remember the thing of Paul? We don't know what the thorn, of, the thorn in the flesh was. Perhaps he was ill. Perhaps he had some kind of thing that was a recurring thing for him. And he says he prays three times for God to take the thorn away. And God doesn't. And then he hears from heaven God say to him, My grace is sufficient for you. Yeah? It's interesting. At that point, he doesn't say, Oh God, I'm going to give up then. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop doing what you've called me to do. He says, no. He says, okay, Jesus has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So I, you know what? I'm still going to put my trust into his perfect faith. If Jesus says his grace is enough for me, I'm going to believe that his grace is enough for me and I'm going to carry on. And that's what he does. We sang this morning, but even if our bodies are thrown into flames, will we still be the ones who say, my God saves even if our prayers are not answered in the way that we want, will we still say, my God is good. I will live by His perfect faith. I will trust Him completely. Yeah, <laughs> it's a challenge, isn't it? But this is how Paul says he lived, and I believe it's how God says we should live. And so the prayer of faith is simply when our wishes, our desires, coincide perfectly with God's perfect will, which is in Christ Jesus. And uh, 1 John five fourteen. This is my confidence. This is what John says. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When my imperfect revelation, when my incomplete understanding, for a moment it coincides, it comes into contact with his perfect understanding, his perfect will. In that moment, my prayer is answered and he moves. You hear what I'm saying? That's the prayer of faith. And he says, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So I'm saying, we can never manipulate God in our prayer. We can never force him to change his mind in how we pray. His will is perfect. He is sovereign over all things in our lives. And yet I do believe that the prayer of faith is when, for a moment, our desires, our, our uh, will, if you like, connects perfectly with his and we participate, participate in that moment with the perfect will and the perfect faith of Jesus. And it's because of that fact that he answers us and he breaks open something in our lives. And Paul really says the same thing in Romans 8. Remember, he's speaking about intercessory prayer. 
And I love this portion. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I'm praying, I don't know what to pray. I know how to pray. I mean, I can sing a good sentence together. I can know. But sometimes I know my own heart. I know that I'm wicked. I know that I'm selfish. And so when I, when I, when I want to ask God sometimes, I'm like, God, I don't even know if I'm going to ask with the right motive here. I feel all mixed up inside. Do you ever feel like that? No, you're all perfect. That's okay. <laughs> well, I feel like that. And you know what? In those moments, the best thing to do is you just go, oh, basabar. You just cry out. You cry out in tongues. And you know what the word says? The Roman says, it says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In our weakness. In verse 26, For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with groaning too deep for words. When you don't know what to say, that's when you cry out in tongues. You just, mondo, shondo, bondo. You just kind of go for it. Why? Because you don't know what to pray. But the Spirit inside of you knows what to pray. And the Spirit inside of you knows what Jesus, the perfect one, is praying. And the Holy Spirit inside of you connects with the perfect will of Jesus, and He answers. That's why it's such a gift. People think it's mad to pray in tongues. I want to say, when you don't know what to pray, pray for all you're worth in tongues. Just groan out and cry out to God, because the perfect Holy Spirit inside of you is connecting with the will of the Father, and He answers. Pray. And so, last question to answer. Do we know if we are praying the prayer of faith? Will we know? Well, it, it can be like that. I don't know necessarily it is like that all the time, but someone quoted this morning in the prayer meeting. Mark eleven twenty four says, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So that implies to me that there's certainly a conscious awareness that you know if you are praying with an unbelieving heart or if you're praying with a believing heart. Would you agree? That's what that implies. There's a consciousness when we pray, that we need to believe consciously. And all of us have experienced that, those amazing times in prayer. Haven't you experienced that time in prayer? Where you, you, you're praying and you just know that God has heard you. I always use this phrase, you know in your knower. It's like you just know that God has heard you. There's like a breakthrough that you can sense, that you can feel. We've all had those amazing moments where we know God has heard our prayer and something breaks open in our lives. There's an assurance that He's heard our prayer. It's been my um, experience, though, that those, those things don't happen as often as we think they should. <laughs> we like to think that every time we pray, there's that, bra- there's that breakthrough. And every prayer is answered like that. And it's not like that, is it? Sometimes we pray and it does, we don't, God doesn't answer in the way that we think or it does, doesn't happen. And some other times there are those amazing moments where there's that breakthrough, and we know that it's done, and it's happened, and, and the breakthrough comes. So what I'm trying to do is, is try to encourage you in this, in this way, that we have a growing expectation, a growing yearning, a growing passion to see the supernatural, and at the same time, we live with a sane head, that we don't get presumptuous, and we don't presume that every time we pray, God is just automatically going to do our bidding. Because then you get into this mad thing of people walking around the church saying they are healed, but they are still obviously very sick. Now there is the thing of believing God and persevering in believing. 
but let's be sane. That's what I'm saying. It's possible to live with these tensions, with a growing expectation. God, every time I pray, I want to see you move. Yeah? And still living with the fact that we are imperfect people, that we don't, <laughs> we don't always ask perfectly, and that our wills are not the perfect will of Jesus. Are you with me? I hope this is bringing freedom, and I hope no one is feeling condemned in any way, because I, I want to bring freedom. I want us to increasingly be those that are praying with all of our hearts to see the supernatural, with an ever-growing desire to see the supernatural. I've talked a little bit last time about sin and sickness. I won't go there. But lastly, just to encourage you, let's live on the cutting edge of faith. <laughs> yeah? Let's live on the cutting edge of faith. Why? Well, when we are on the edge, when we've really pushed the boat out, when we've really, we've really extended ourselves, what we are really saying is, God, if you don't pitch right now, I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's faith, isn't it? That's faith. That's really pushing ourselves out. That's really saying, God, we're believing you for great things. And if you don't come, it's not going to happen. Colin and I, we, we had a ministry opportunity last week when we were in Slovenia. And this lady came up and she wanted prayer. And she was, she was blind. But I mean blind, I mean her eyes were white. They, 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 were, they didn't see any light. They didn't see anything. You know, sometimes when people are blind, they kind of, there's no control in the muscles and their eyes look in different directions. Have you ever, she, she asked us to pray for her. <laughs> this is not just praying for a cold. Yeah, this is praying for a blind person who's got no opportunity of seeing anything. I found it profoundly challenging. <laughs> I don't know about you, Colin. <laughs> but we just prayed. I said, okay, God, we're going to pray. And we prayed. And I don't know, we'll have to see, we can phone them and see if, if she's seeing any better. But I, I'm not trying to discourage you from praying for people. I'm trying to encourage you to pray for everyone that needs prayer. Anything that moves, any sick friend you have, that the first thing you do is you pray for them with faith, trusting that there are going to be moments that your imperfect will coincides with the perfect will of the Father for that person at that time, and you're going to see a flash of glory into your life. You're going to see the eternal perfection that is still to come. You're going to see it a re reality before you right now, and you're going to see them healed. That we see more and more and more and more and more and more of those moments. The only way it's going to happen is if you and I, like John Wimber, don't get tired of praying. When we don't see the instant, we don't see the thing right now, or we don't see it next week, that we persevere and we carry on and we carry on and we carry on and we carry on until God starts to move and He heals. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. That you would be a faithful person, that I would be a faithful person, that we wouldn't give up, that we would faithfully pray so that Jesus can break in and many can be healed and many can be saved. Amen.